Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So I think we made some mistakes in the lead-up to this. The United States was annoyed, that's to put it mildly, that Australia unilaterally decided to pull its embassy out when it did earlier in the year. There's concern about the fact that that then left no diplomatic presence, so the people to whom we did have an obligation had nowhere to physically go with their applications for asylum. You know, it just, it just further complicated what then became this almost impossible task of getting the right people out in a timely way. Hello, lovely people at Podcasts. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host and political editor of Guardian Australia. And with me this week is one of my favourite people in the whole world. That's lovely. (laughs) She was momentarily speechless. I was. Yes. It's Karen Middleton, uh, who is the chief political correspondent with the Sunday paper. Now, the reason we're having this yak is because I have been massively COVID-focused uh, but some seismic things in geopolitical terms have been playing out over the last couple of weeks. That is uh, what's going on in Afghanistan. And there is no journalist in the country who is more authoritative on Afghanistan uh, than Karen. Well, that's a big call. No. I, I can live up to that. No, it's <laughs> absolutely true. And, and you know, even though you're a girl, Karen. A girl. I know. Who knows about the that's war? Weird. Girl, girl <laughs> who knows about wars. It still surprises people. <laughs> oh, God almighty. It's so bad. Anyway, uh, a couple of years, well, God, how long ago? No, it's like it's more than a couple of years ago, the book. Uh, it's 10 years ago, about this week, I think, Bloody it came hell. out. Yeah, yes. I wrote a book on the sort of political backstory to yes. the Afghanistan conflict called An Unwinnable War. Which, yes, this is what I was getting to, the title, right? So uh, the, the clue was in the title. Um, but anyway, I just want to start at the beginning, right, because my working assumption is most of us are, have been completely in the COVID cave. Uh, the, our Guardian Essential polling this week had a couple of questions about Afghanistan, which uh, the the results of which <laughs> suggested to me very strongly that people it's just people haven't got the bandwidth really to I think that's right absorb what's going on. So let's just start at the beginning uh, with the unwinnable war. Just remind people how did this happen? How did we get there? So it started with September 11, really, 2001, 20 years ago coming up. And I was in Washington, D.C., actually, with the then Prime Minister, John Howard. There were a bunch of us journos who were there for his official visit. And that was when those terrorist attacks occurred. Now, 
yeah, the United States, understandably, uh, wanted to avenge those attacks, felt that they needed to respond and they went to Afghanistan in that vein because Afghanistan had been the training ground for a lot of the people that ended up launching the attacks on the World Trade Centre and other sites around the United States. So that was the reason the US went in. Initially, actually, they were a bit reluctant to gather allies around them. Uh, sometimes allies can be a bit more trouble than mm. they're worth. Mm-hmm. So actually Australia forced its way in. John Howard, having been in Washington, was deeply affected by what happened, desperately wanted Australia to support the United States uh, as an ally and a friend, and effectively on the spot committed Australia to whatever the US decided to do. That was a war in Afghanistan, and by December of that year, uh, forces were going into Afghanistan. It, they were there for a year or so, and then the tempo of things eased back. They managed to overthrow the Taliban regime very quickly. Mm-hmm. But the other reason they were there was to try and get Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the attack. They didn't actually achieve that for a decade, but they eased back, took their eye off Afghanistan because things were going on in Iraq and, in fact, started the war in Iraq based, as we now know, on false intelligence about weapons of mass destruction. There are a lot of complicated views on why that occurred, but one of them is that after the September 11 attacks there was so much paranoia about missing something again, Mm -hmm. that there'd been an intelligence failure there, that people were overly jumpy about intelligence. Now, there are other factors at play as well, but that was, I think, one of them. Uh, And Australia, as well as the US, went to Iraq, took their eye off Afghanistan, and then in 2005, things got bad in Afghanistan again, and we had to go back. And that's when the mission really shifted and started to become about nation building, Mm. the sort of thing that John Howard and other leaders have always said we shouldn't get involved in because it's sort of never-ending. And I think we've seen the mission there shift and change over the years. Prime Minister in, Prime Minister out. They stayed there, but they lost a bit of focus on what they were doing and it dragged on, as we now know, for two decades. Mm. And so that's how we got in. And uh, and how we got in sort of suggests the reasons why we got out, but let's do that next. So, you know, it's not just us. Obviously, the the, the primary actors here are the Americans. So, why why did we get out? Why did we end? I think the Americans could see that they couldn't achieve whatever it was they were trying to achieve at that point. Um, I've always taken the view that that nobody in the White House or the Pentagon had ever read a history book or the State Department when they went into Afghanistan in the first place. They didn't seem to understand the country they were going into with its feudal history and its generations of seeing off invaders. Mm. And the absence of that understanding, along with assumptions about imposing democratic systems on a country full of fiefdoms with warlords and tribal allegiances and this tenacity and determination to see off the infidels meant that they just never succeeded in 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 creating the kind of nation they wanted to create. They also installed leaders that I think worked well for the United States but didn't necessarily bring the country together in a way they wanted to and it became very clear that they needed to get out. And that process started really way back in about 2012 Uh, Julia Gillard was Prime Minister here and they started talking about winding down and moving out. And uh, I I went to, I did three trips to Afghanistan as a correspondent and my third one was in 2012 and it was just a couple of weeks before those 
forward operating bases mm-hmm. in rural Aruzgan province that Australia was on was at were pulled pulled apart and they moved back. So the, really, the withdrawal was beginning right back then. Yep. Um, ultimately, we moved we moved all of those people out in around 2014, and there was a just a small group based in Kabul doing training and the like, mm. but far far smaller than had been the case in the years prior to that. Yeah, because I, I myself I only went once and on a prime ministerial trip, but I was at, I, I visited the base at Tarrant Cowton. There's like was a pretty big operation at that point. You know, we were very much embedded there, so. The dismantling sort of came in stages, is what you're saying, really? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And also, I think uh, in terms of Joe Biden's position, my recollection, because I read the Obama memoir, like, you know, a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. uh, and my recollection from that is that when Obama was deciding what to do in Afghanistan, Biden was the most strident voice for get the hell out, right? Yep. Like that that has been a long-standing position of his? That has been a long-standing position of his. Um, getting to where we are right now all these past couple of weeks has been via Donald Trump as well. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. when Donald Trump was president, the US took more concrete steps to start winding back. And if you talk to a number of analysts who know a lot more about Afghanistan than me, they will tell you that that's where the really big mistakes uh, were made in terms of this stage of the process. Because that, he wanted to negotiate with the Taliban, right? Yeah. I mean, there are a number of people even in this country who say they were always going to have to do that given that the military solution hadn't worked. Um, I remember the Chief of the Defence Force, Angus Campbell, for example, addressing a committee hearing here in Parliament House not long ago talking about the fact that they always needed a political solution. Yeah. Go back to 2020, February of 2020, um, the United States authorised talks with the Taliban, involved US negotiators and the Taliban. It really froze the Afghan government out of the picture and the argument goes that the US gave away far too much in those talks, Mm -hmm. legitimised the Taliban for a start in those discussions, elevated them to the equivalent of a government, which was a part of the challenge for for the Taliban in regaining power. Yeah. negotiated or agreed to uh, allow the release of up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners, some of whom had been responsible for murdering coalition soldiers, including Australians, Mm. uh, and did that effectively unilaterally against the wishes of a number of other countries, including ours, uh, and also set a withdrawal date, um, a firm date. Initially, it was in May of this year that was to be the date. The only thing that really changed when Joe Biden took over was that the date shifted. It shifted back to September, but also inexplicably, he picked a symbolic date that was going to be symbolic for the Taliban, September 11, Mm. um, the the 20th anniversary. I mean, nobody I've spoken to can understand why that occurred. Um, You know, it was going to motivate the Taliban, you think, to... Mm. uh, Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, (laughs) to to get back in to power by that time, if not on that day. Yeah. So how they can say they weren't, they were surprised by the speed, I'm a bit puzzled. I don't know. There was intelligence around that said it was possible that Kabul would fall. And in fact, I did a story a week or so ago based on some intelligence that was within days of Kabul falling, saying it was likely that Kabul would fall, but not um, but, but between now and the end of the year. So right. they weren't forecasting the timeline and they've clearly been somehow caught short by the march on Kabul, which happened very rapidly on that Sunday, the 15th of August. Yeah, and um, we'll get to Kabul and what went down there. Uh, and I know from our conversations uh, over the last week or so. You've had some very stressful conversations with people and we'll we'll, we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, But 
uh, first of all, in terms of, okay, so America, we've sort of mapped out the reasons why we went in and why the Americans came out. What's your own view as to the merits of it, right? You've referenced that obviously... Uh, well, God knows why they picked September 11, you know, like the the obvious kind of screw-ups, right? But are we right to withdraw or not? Well, look, um, it's it's kind of almost an impossible question to answer because on the one hand, we can't stay there forever um, and it was quite clear that the attempts to impose the kind of government on Afghanistan that the United States and its allies wanted to impose just wasn't working. So it was more the question of how we got out, I Mm. think. I think that is really the the thing you have to debate because, uh, uh, you know, you can't stay in another country forever and there's an argument that we shouldn't have stayed as long as we have and where on that timeline we should have pulled out is going to be the subject of endless debate. But the way we've done it, I think, is not been good. Uh, I know the US president says it couldn't have happened any other way. Well, there are other people who have a different view and the chaos uh, and, you know, the terrible situation we saw in Kabul over recent times and the fact that we have left behind some people to whom the Allied forces owe an obligation, I think a moral obligation, will tell you that it did not go as well as it could have or should have. Um, I accept that there's never going to be an easy way to evacuate people um, little bit by little bit, but, you know, surely we could have done it in a more orderly manner uh, than than was mm, well, what it's happened. Well, so, it's sort of like I guess, you know, the sort of brutally realist view is that if you lose the war you don't get to determine the you know, a graceful exit for that's yourself. Right. I yeah. mean, that's that's the real politic of it. We've talked quite a bit about America and um, and obviously your recollections from the Howard period, just specifically on the withdrawal before we get to uh, scenes from Kabul. Uh, uh, let's just think about the Australian government's role because uh, there's been debate here obviously about uh, whether or not um, you know, we evacuated people too soon, not soon enough, uh, which people we evacuated, uh, which people we left behind. What's the cut through on that in terms of the Australian government's cul- culpability in all of this? Well, I think there is some culpability in terms of pulling the embassy out when they did. Um, there is some tension between the Australian government and the US government in both directions. I think the Australian government has been very frustrated that the US has made some unilateral decisions and announcements mm. without consulting Australia, including Joe Biden's announcement of the new withdrawal date, which was made on behalf of all the allies before Australia had got a chance to speak. Um, so there have been some tensions like that. And the United States was annoyed, that's to put it mildly, mm. that Australia unilaterally decided to pull its embassy out when it did earlier in the year mm-hmm. because, you know, these things have potentially momentum of their own. They can have consequences of their own. They can create their own dynamic. So if you are suddenly the first country to pull your embassy out, you're saying to the population, we don't think it's safe here. Mm. We think things are, are going to seed and we're getting out. And that can then create yeah. create that atmosphere, make other countries panic and precipitate a sort of domino effect. And I think that to a degree it did do that. Um, and so there was concern 
about that. There's concern about the fact that that then left no diplomatic presence. So the people to whom we did have an obligation, the people who had worked for Australia either as security guards or translators at the embassy in Kabul or with the Australian forces in Uruzgan, had nowhere to physically go with their applications for asylum. Some of those were sort of in the ether. Um, the process was long and drawn out and they were now having, having to send those overseas. They were being handled from Amman in Jordan. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, it just, it just further complicated what then became this almost impossible task of getting the right people out in a timely way. Mm-hmm. So I think we made some mistakes in the lead-up to this. Uh, our government has taken a very low-risk um, self-interested view, and I can understand governments doing that. They will put their own people's fate first, and they were concerned for the security of Australian diplomats. But the United States had offered to co-locate our embassy in the US compound, and our government didn't do that. Now, it's my view that Maurice Payne, was the foreign minister, was inclined to mm-hmm. that, but I think the decisions were made um, elsewhere by others. Well, no. well, the the um, certainly the cabinet decision that was taken to finally close the embassy was taken when she was in, in Washington. Yeah. She'd just been to uh, Kabul. She'd met with President Ghani and others. Um, when she landed in Washington, she dialed into a cabinet meeting, and uh, and that decision was taken. So. It's been a little unclear exactly what the dynamics of that were, um, but it seems to me from the outside there were some tensions around those processes and that decision. But the decision was taken, it wasn't reversed, um, and then we've seen everything that's flowed in the months between May oh, and August. That is really fascinating. Now, th- that brings us to what's flowed, which is uh, the scenes in Kabul. Now, even people with very limited bandwidth, I think, will have observed uh, some of those scenes from an evacuation. Uh, just share with people some of the conversations you've been having having with people on the ground there as this has played out. Yeah, so I've had conversations with people here in Australia, you know, former veterans, others with a deep engagement with Afghanistan, with Afghans and Australians, and also with people in Afghanistan, some of whom were lined up for those for me by those people I've talked about. A whole range of people from Australian citizens trying to get home, um, but with Afghan family they were also concerned about uh, and, and worried about their own safety because of their associations, mm-hmm. um, to people who already have visas, to people who had applied for visas, to people who wanted to apply. Um, so I had journalistic contact with a number of people and the conversations are quite harrowing. Their own safety was at risk. Some of them didn't want to use their real names. One of them quite bravely did, um, but all of them were keeping their locations secret. All of them were worrying about how they were going to get to the airport Mm. um, if and when our evacuation actually began and those conversations were initially anyway in the lead-up to that, uh, what was going to happen there and whether, in fact, they'd get out. And, you know, they were well-founded, those concerns, because even Australian citizens ended up being stuck outside that airport for days, some Mm. of them. Um, I, I was also contacted by a number of strangers. Um, I think anyone who had any kind of public visibility on Afghanistan 
was getting contacted on social media or via email or people get your phone number yep. and they were begging begging for help. So I think in an emergency situation you make the decision that you will just pass their details to the government, that you will pass the details on. That's as much of a commitment as you can give. Um, where there were Australian citizens, I was a little bit more engaged uh, because it was very clear that the government had an obligation, a consular responsibility mm. for those people. Mm. Um, and so I was trying to help those people a bit more directly um, and I ended up at some points sort of connecting them up with DFAT, um, passing on messages. It got to the point where there were people standing outside the airport having guns pointed at them, mm. guns fired over their heads, crying on the phone to their relatives who would ring me, you know, I would ring DFAT. A number of us were doing this, all kinds of people. Um, and, and, it, you know, it's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a, bit of a challenge to you as a journalist thinking mm. where, where am I? in all of this, whereas my own moral responsibility, ethical, journalistic, whatever, sure, sure. people were in crisis, so you did your best to help them. Mm. Um, and, you know, we would get, I, I would suggest to them, take a photo of yourself so we can see what you're wearing. You know, we could see the colour of a woman's hijab and we could pass that to the government so they could look out for, them, for that person from the other side of the fence because most of the Australian forces were inside the airport yeah. uh, and the perimeter was really Americans and other countries. Um, and there was a lot of confusion, visas that weren't being recognised, people just not being able to push their way to the front. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was a pretty frantic situation, I think. Um, and, the, and a lot of officials and soldiers and others from Australia did, you know, pretty incredible work. There, there are criticisms that can be made about the whole, how the whole thing was set up. Um, and maybe some confused communications between different agencies. DFAT took the lead, um, but there there was clearly some confusion going on. Um, but there were a lot of people who worked their guts out really mm. on it. Um, and it is it's a great thing that they got out the people that they did. Um, and we can argue about whether it was too slow and or too late and all of that. But they did get people out. Uh, and, and and they did well to do that. And uh, did we get, I mean, this is sort of a ridiculous question because the answer obviously, did we get every single person out will have to be no, no. given those conditions. But, I mean, how many people did we get out? I don't mean a number. I just mean like how many people now are left there basically, uh, well, in, in circumstances that I have no words for? Well, some hundreds, I think. I mean, if you talk to the people who've been advocating for the interpreters, for example, some of them got out, some of their people got out, some of them didn't. Um, I know of a family that a migration agent was trying to assist. She got some of the people out. That family, she didn't get out. She she had rung me begging for help. Um, you know, I could I could offer a lot less assistance to people in that in that situation, but. Um, what, what I know did occur with that family is they had been at the airport for days and they had been standing right near that trench and the government did put out its message on the Thursday warning and quite directly and openly warning of the risk of a terrorist attack. Now, some people were wondering if that warning was just because they wanted people to leave the airport because they didn't have enough room to take them and maybe there was a bit of that, but I do think they were genuinely worried and it's a good thing that that people like this family heeded that warning. They got sent a direct message via their migration agent from the government that they should leave the airport grounds if they couldn't get through. Mm. They did about, I don't know, an hour or two before oh, the bomb went God. off. So uh, they're still there. That's not a win, but they're not dead. No. That is. No, exactly. And that's, you know, that, that's that's the, you know, that's that's the world of 
an evacuation when you when you lose. Um, Peter Dutton at one point sort of you know made a bit of a performance uh, of when when the government's role was criticised um, in saying, well, you know, we could... I mean, he didn't say we could, you know, terrorists could come back. It wasn't that blunt. Well, he did say that a number of the interpreters but, have now joined the Taliban. Yeah, but it was, it was pretty blunt. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of working out, like, what the fair construction of his remarks were. Um, anyway, and it was sort of at the time it was very jarring because the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister were sort of, you know, much, much more softly, softly... Yeah, ways, sort of sending the message to people, smugglers, that the collapse of a country doesn't mean you're back in business, all that sort of stuff. But then in walked Peter Dutton, Defence Minister, all guns blazing. What do you make of this sort of, you know, double sides and, you know, yes, they work for us, but then they work for the other guy. and Good cop, you know, bad cop. Exactly. Like, what do you make of all that? I think they were messaging to a couple of different constituencies. Mm-hmm. I think they were messaging to the people smugglers. I think they were very conscious, particularly the Prime Minister, of not wanting to restart the mm, boats sure. if indeed that was a risk. So I think you will find there's probably a video of his little um, address about that Uh doing the rounds online as a a deliberate attempt to put that in front of anyone who had ideas of bringing people here. Yeah. But I think they were also talking to a domestic constituency. Um, I think their view, certainly now, and you've touched on it, we talked about people not having bandwidth to to grasp this. Um, The government takes the view, and I think others agree whether they think it's a good thing or not, that people don't really care about mm. this. Um, they they made the judgment based on the fact that it wasn't leading the TV news bulletins. There were, it was all still COVID. Now, whether people would care more about this in a humanitarian way in the absence of COVID is impossible to know. So I think there's a constituency that has a humanitarian view, but there's definitely a constituency that if, if anyone was going to pay attention, they would, that were worried that bringing in people from Afghanistan was going to be importing terrorists. And I think there was there was some messaging mm. to some of those people in perhaps conservative electorates about that. Um, the government does have to be careful about who it brings in. And in a crisis like this, sure, there might well be people who seek to come um, when the, the checking isn't being done as yeah, thoroughly. And sure. you do have to be careful. You absolutely do. But you've also got to find somewhere the balance between the humanitarian and the moral obligation and that care and concern. Um, and, you know, there'll be questions asked about whether that right balance was found. And certainly people in the Afghan community here were very offended and upset at the suggestion that all the people who worked for Australia were somehow now mm. joining the Taliban. Suspect. It's, mm. tr- it's true that in Afghanistan there are very um, ruthless and hard-headed people, They're very pragmatic. They have had invasions over the mm. centuries and mm. they have seen them off. They, they, they take a very um, hard practical view of where their interests lie. And so I think, it, you know, going back to what the US has said and the president in the US about how he was astonished that the soldiers all laid down their arms, well, I think... There was a very clever strategy employed by the Taliban to um, pick off provincial capitals, soft targets, overrun the soldiers and then create this domino effect where word gets around Mm. and once there's momentum, they see that their interests do not lie in resisting. They give up and and that's what they have done. And I think so in, in that respect, sure, there might have been people who gave in and put their arms down and said, okay, um, but to suggest that everyone who worked for us, which was the implication, has somehow got evil intent towards this country, I think is probably over a a 
significant overreach and it did upset a lot of people. Yeah. Um, let's just end on what next and and I mean that sort of both in Afghanistan and sort of geopolitically. I know both of us would love a crystal ball, yeah. um, but, you know, within the within the bounds. I, I read a piece in the Washington Post this week, for example, that uh, – uh, posited that Biden had done the right thing uh, and, in fact, if withdrawing the sort of resources from the Afghanistan conflict, both psychic and, and physical and financial, and then having that, you've, you've got then some surplus that you can devote to the sort of, uh, well, I guess the sort of, you know, the rising power problem. Yes. Like that, you know, China, China Russia, Russia yeah. you know, that uh, that is sort of what, once America has extricated itself from the, from this conflict, um, you know, look out the rest of the world was basically, I mean, it was more nuanced than that, but sort of, right? Yes. It, it, what do you reckon about all that? I'm sure that there's truth in that, that the United States, you know, has to be very glib about it, bigger fish to fry and needs to look further afield on the world stage in terms of its big challenges now. And I'm sure Australia wouldn't quibble with the, the need to keep an eye on China in particular and, and be engaged in this region. But um, I suppose that there, there is the question with no answer at this point about what we've left behind mm. and what it becomes. You know, we do have to remember that, that, that the reason that we went in in the first place, aside from getting Osama bin Laden, was to stop that country being a haven for terrorists in the future. What has occurred with the departure and the way that it occurred is that um, all the hardware, the military hardware that the United States had is now in the hands of the Taliban. Mm. Now the big stuff, the helicopters and the tanks and the, the other vehicles and the like have been um, dismantled or d destroyed, but there's a, a whole lot of small arms and, and other um, weaponry that they will have access to now. So they're well armed uh, mm. and they're reasonably well organised. They've obviously had help in getting organised. There's plenty of people who think they got help from Pakistan. Yep. So what kind of a force are they going to be and what kind of friends are they going to have? We've seen that terrible bombing at the airport attributed to ISIS-K, who are not close friends of the Taliban, but both yep. have employed the same methods and do um, work to the same ends sometimes when it suits them. So we saw the Taliban accommodate uh, organisations like al-Qaeda in the past. We don't know what kinds of accommodations will be made. We don't know what kind of country that will be or which other global powers will see it as in their interests to engage there. And certainly there's talk about not only Pakistan but Russia yeah. and China and Iran. And yet again, Afghanistan becomes the pawn in in the global games of of other nations. Mm. And so the two are not entirely disconnected when we look at the rise of China or Russia. Um, they will be watching what goes on there and whether there's an advantage they can gain from engaging with Afghanistan. Mm. And Australia has a big challenge ahead of it too. Are we going to recognise a Taliban exactly. government? Do we, exactly. do we, mm. do we proceed to recognise the Taliban government or are we going to hold out and not do that? Um, it'll be an interesting process leading up to that decision, I think. And just last one, which sort of flows from the general geopolitical imponderable. Um, what do you reckon this says about Biden? Because obviously we've had a period of Trump, uh, who was a, a you know an isolationist really by instinct. Obviously, you know there was the battle, you know trade battle with China, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but was very much sort of preoccupied with the domestic theatre rather than sort of shaping American power in the world. 
you know, Biden is said to be a guy of alliances and a sort of, you know, like a, a kind of Cold War, you know, sort of Atlantic kind of, you know, that, that like... NATO and... NATO. A multilateralist. A multilateralist. Than, than Trump was. Exactly but. right. Like, uh, what do you reckon? What do you... Again, I mean, crystal ball, I won't hold you. I won't hold you to these... Thank you. <laughs> ..to these predictions. But what, what, do you, what do you make of him and, well, and President Biden as a shaper of the world order? I think he's a more, more of a, much more of an internationalist than Trump was. If you recall, you know, when he became the running mate for Obama, one of the th- one of the things that was said about him was that he had foreign policy credentials. He had runs on the board, not only from being in um, in elected positions in the United States, mm. but that he he also um, had those kinds of credentials. So he's been engaged in these issues for a long time. He's yeah. he's conscious of the United States's interest uh, on a global scale as well as domestically. So I do think he will be engaged in the world in a much greater way than Trump was. And, you know, history may change the the glasses through which we view what's just gone on in Afghanistan. Right now it looks like a catastrophic failure, um, but but he will certainly get credit, I think, ultimately from the American people for getting out of Afghanistan mm. because they have lost some thousands of people there and they certainly would be wanting that over. Um, it, it, it's hard to know exactly what his le- legacy will be, but I, I think, you know, a lot of people expect that he may only be a one-term president. So he'll, if he wants to achieve things on the world stage, he will be in a hurry and that will be part of, you know, what has motivated the timeline, I think, here, that this is not a president who can look probably look forward to two terms because of his age, if nothing else. Yeah. Now, we might be wrong about that. But but more so than recent presidents, you will assume that Joe Biden is a person in a hurry who wants to get things done. And he's obviously mindful of the domestic constituency if he wants to hand on to another Democrat if he doesn't want to run again. Um, but he's also want to be going to be mindful of his legacy on the world stage, given that that's an area of his interest. So mm. I think mm-hmm. it, there will be a, a more of a global focus, sure. There you go. So you're all ca- caught up on Afghanistan, guys. I promised you that you would be all caught up by the end of this conversation. Are they still awake? That's no. the question. <laughs> no, we're all better informed by that. Thank you. And thanks for taking time out to come into the pod cave and talk to me. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to you guys for listening and sharing and all the usual drill. Uh, Parliament, uh, I think, will rise by the end of today. We're recording on Thursday. Uh, I think they'll be gone for six weeks. Yep. Uh, But we'll be back next week. Thanks again. Thanks. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.